Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah 1, The Cost of Prayer. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. And we'll begin in chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1. Give you a little background here. In uh, 588 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, this is the fellow that's uh, talked about in the first four chapters or so of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. This would be the third time he came. Uh, he had made uh, agreements with the folks there in Jerusalem on the two previous occasions. And the uh, the folks there in Jerusalem would not keep their word. They rebelled against him, and so he came the third time and besieged the city. For 18 months, the siege wore on. Famine and pestilence ravaged the beleaguered city before the armies of Babylon breached the walls and conquered Jerusalem. They burned the temple, that glorious temple that Solomon had built. They broke down the the city walls. They destroyed everything and carried away all that was valuable, including any surviving inhabitants that may have had any skills that would be useful to the conquering nation. And they left behind a desolate pile of rubble. The survivors went to a village to the north and then eventually vacated the land and went down into Egypt. And virtually nobody lived in the region of Judea, a place that had, during the time of David, a population of uh, probably over a million people. And at this time, entirely empty. After 48 years in exile, the 70 years, by the way, starts from the, uh, the first captivity. The 48 years in exile in Babylon, a group of these people and their descendants were allowed to return. And after about 20 years, they finally finished rebuilding the temple, not on the same scale as uh, the one that had been destroyed. But Jerusalem itself, the city, was still a city without walls. It was defenseless and in great reproach. That's the, the setting there as you look at Israel at Jerusalem. Now, we're going to go about uh, 800 miles to the east. The Babylonians had uh, been conquered, oh, about 90 years before by the Persians. And uh, the ancient Persia is the same thing, uh, basically, as modern Iran. The bulk of the people lived on the uh, the western edge, where there's a little bit more rainfall, some mountains and so on. You can grow crops there. And so there in uh, one of the capital cities, they had several. The uh, the kings would move around depending on the climate. If it was real, if the places where it was, uh, uh, when it got real cold in the mountains in the wintertime, they would move to the lowlands where there were palm trees and all kind of that beautiful stuff. And then when it got hot in the summertime, they'd go back up to the mountains. And they had different palaces. The capital would move around. And so at, uh, at the capital, it says in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Chislu. Chislu is, uh, let me look at my notes here, Chislu is, uh, uh, straddles November and December on our calendar. And it came to pass in the month, uh, Chislu in the 20th year, this would be the 20th year of the reign of the king at the time, as I was in Shushan the palace, also known as Susa, uh, in some of the modern translations it's, uh, it's done that way. The Hanani, so here you have a fellow named Nehemiah, he has a position, as we'll see at the end of the message, a position there in the capital city. He is in what is now Iran. He's a long way from Israel, especially when you're dealing with the fact that transportation back in the day, even for the elite, would have been camels or horses. And most people, it was uh, it was walking. 
or, or donkeys. And so a long way from the, uh, the place of his ancestors there in Jerusalem. And again, a number of generations before. It would have been probably his great-grandfather at the, uh, at the earliest probably that would have been carried away captive. And so uh, Nehemiah probably has never been to Jerusalem. But he's inquiring about it. This is the place of his ancestors, uh, a place that he has an interest in. The Hanani, verse 2, one of my brethren came, and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left there in the captivity, there in the province, are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also was broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. The year is now 445 B.C. Over 70 years have passed since the temple was rebuilt. Over 90 years since the exiles, the first bunch, had, had gone back. And by the way, that bunch was, was uh, probably 50,000 people or more. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a little group of people. A large number went back. And so Nehemiah asked this question. His brother has just come back from this long journey. He asks the question, perhaps in idle curiosity, perhaps in courtesy. But he says, how are the, how are the people? He probably doesn't know anybody there personally. How are the descendants of those that remain, that few small group, that small, those few people that were there? And those who returned and their, their descendants, how are the, how are the Jews, my people? Thriving there in Jerusalem now that the king has allowed them to go back. And that a generation or two have, have passed. How is Jerusalem prospering with all those returning captives? With the rebuilt temple. And I think that he assumed that the city walls had been rebuilt. It had been attempted by the, the first returning people. It was stopped by the Samaritans. By the way, as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, this is one of the reasons why the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other is because of what went on during the time of Nehemiah and the uh, the century or two around that. The work had been destroyed and the gates had been burned by fire. This is not what Nebuchadnezzar had done. This is what had happened subsequent to that when they had gone back to repair. Nehemiah probably, I think, had, uh, had assumed that things had been fixed and repaired and things were going well. And so he hears this, this news, this tragedy. The people are in great affliction. There is no protection. They are forced to yield to hostile neighbors, and they were hostile neighbors. The wall is broken down. The gates are burned. And part of it is the original, destruct, original destruction that had happened well over 100 years before. And then... They had been thwarted in their, their attempts to, to fully rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So he hears this. Now understand, Nehemiah is hundreds and hundreds of miles away. He has, in all, in all probability, never been to Jerusalem. He knows about it. He has read portions of the scripture, certainly. He is familiar with the history. He is familiar with the background. He is familiar with the fact that this is where his, his ancestors came from. He had expected good news and he heard bad news. They said the remnant that are left there in the captivity in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And I dare say that most people, regardless of their position, would say, oh, that's horrible. That's horrible. And here we are in church. I'll pray for you. Which we may or not, may or not actually follow through on. I'll pray for you. That's what I'll do. 
and I'll feel good about it. But uh, really, as far as my hands, my efforts, I'll do nothing. People respond to things like this a number of different ways. There may have been shock. I think there probably was. There may be weeping and sadness. A lot of folks ignore. A lot of folks will say, I, I will pray. But some folks will, will earnestly pray. And that's what we see with Nehemiah. Of all people, J. Edgar Hoover said the force of prayer is greater than any possible combination of man-controlled powers because prayer is man's greatest means of tapping the resources of God. Verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words. Again, meeting my brother. He's come back from this long journey. And I get this information. When I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and mourned. Look at that. Certain days. This isn't something that, uh, oh man, that's awful. What's for lunch? (laughs) Which would be something my my wife would hear at my house. (laughs) He mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Certain days. This is more than once or twice. I'll pray for you. And then just to make sure that we do, and I, Frank, I'll, I'll, I do this. If I tell somebody I'm going to pray for them, if I'm talking, some of you know this firsthand on the phone. Let me pray with you right now with you on the phone. And that way I make sure that I do. And so I'll pray. And I may or may, may not pray for that specific thing again. But he mourns and he prays certain days. He's persevering. He's putting forth effort. He's putting forth time. Look at verse 6. This is part of his prayer. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now. Look at that. Day and night. And this isn't just him praying for his breakfast and then praying before he gets in bed. He is spending some time in prayer. He is putting forth some some effort there. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. This is where we see the answer to the prayer, at least the beginning of it, and we'll be looking at that next time. And it came to pass in the month Nisan. Now, Nisan is uh, the month that straddles March and April. So he has been praying from November to March. Day and night. He's putting forth some time. He's putting forth some effort. He doesn't quit. He sticks his out, sticks it out. Nehemiah means business. He is praying. He wants an answer and he is praying to the one who can do something about the need. What does he do? He praises the Lord. Look at verse five. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy to them that love him and observe his commandments. He praises God. Look at verse 10. And now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. He is honoring, worshiping, praising God in his prayers. I dare say that most of the time when we approach God, I've got, I've got my list. It's like we're, we're addressing Santa Claus. And I have my, my list. Some of, some people just have a, have a little short list. 
because praying is, is an onerous thing that I feel compelled to do. And so if I spend more than five minutes, I'm just dying. But uh, I've got my list. That'll keep me on track. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And here's my, my want list for God. The things I want God to do. The things I want God to do for me. And uh, very often we, we just slide into mode. Bless so-and-so. Heal so-and-so. Bless so-and-so. We use that word bless a lot. What in the world does it mean? Do we, uh, do, are we earnest in our prayers? Are we dealing with specifics? And I dare say Nehemiah was. As much as he knew from his brother. And I'm sure that we're getting a, a summary statement of uh, the situation there in verse 3. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that he grilled his brother and wanted details. He wants to know what's going on. And so he, he prays. He starts with praise. And he ends with praise. But it's what's in between that I want to uh, want you to see. Look in verse 6. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray now before thee day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess, here we go, look at this, confess the sins of the children of Israel, which, what's that next word? Look at that, talk to me. What's it say? We have sinned against thee. Both, what's that next one? I and my father's house have sinned. Now, I will tell you right now that as you go through the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is written for the most part in in first person, you have a guy here who is a sharp fellow. You're not saying, oh man, I can't believe he said that. Oh, oh, it's all, I can't believe he did this. It isn't like you're watching the soap opera of some of the, some of the kings. You are looking at the life of a good man who is earnest in his service for God. You are not seeing a life that is filled with, with horrible tragedies and mistakes and, 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 and just gross disobedience. You're seeing a man who loves the Lord and it's exemplified in his life. And as far as we can observe, as far as we read, we don't see any reason for there to be a, a we and an I. But he includes himself. What were the sins of ancient Israel? Look at verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now, well, that's not very specific. Okay, you want the specifics. Go back and read the book of Judges. Go back and read First and Second Samuel. Go back and read First and Second Kings. And you get to find out why Israel is in the dilemma that they are in. Because what you have in those books is a history of Israel's failure to keep their covenant promise. What were their corrupt actions? Murder. Fornication, adultery, violence, idolatry, homosexuality. Yes, that is a sin. And by the way, the list there is no different than today. Because our clothes change, our culture changes, our languages change. But in our skins, we are exactly the same as people were 3,000 years ago. Because people don't change. We are still in rebellion. We are still corrupt. We are still wanting our own way. We want to be God. 
I want to call the shots. I want to do what I want to do. And anybody who tells me otherwise, well, I'm just going to blow them off and do what I want anyway. And that's what ancient Israel did. And that's what we do today. And Nehemiah said, we and I, the forsaken commandments of acting corruptly. These are specifics for Israel. Failure to keep the temple service. Disregard for God's law. Disregard of the prophets. Now, I want you to understand something. Especially in the here and now. One of the, this is my fixation, and you know this because you've been here. That we in America, Christian people in America today, the key word as far as I'm concerned is we are distracted. We are so distracted by the plague. And we're reading the news and we're saying, well, this guy says this and this guy says this and this guy says this. And what do we believe? And I don't know what to believe. And I don't know whether to, to, to disbelieve everything or believe it all or what. Ah! We're distracted. And this guy is lying and this guy is telling the truth. How do you know? Because I like this guy and I don't like this guy. <laughs> and then we throw the politics into the mix of the whole thing and we have one awful mess. Because they're all sort of intricate, you know. And it, we are distracted people. Because we know what we are supposed to be doing as God's children. I am to be praying. I am to be personally immersed in the Word of God. And not just when I show up on Sunday. I need to be wearing out my Bible from the inside out during the week. I need to be sharing the gospel with other people. I need to be here, if at all possible. I need to be supporting the work. Those are the five basics of what Christians are supposed to be doing. And I dare say that we are neglecting a lot of this in part because we're distracted. Do you know what that amounts to? Our distraction is sin. Because I am fixated on other things and I'm ignoring these things. Folks, read some history. We are not experiencing anything new. When Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, he said that 3,000 years ago. And guess what? Other than clothes and language and technology, nothing's changed. We are still the same. Dealing with the same problems. There have been plagues before. There's been conspiracies before. There's been political intrigue before. And some, most, the vast majority of time in human history, the people who are running the show are not good people. But God's people are supposed to be doing what they're supposed to be doing anyway. So don't get distracted. We. I. Do you know that the church is constantly getting distracted? Throughout its history, we are constantly distracted. We look at the problems around us and we love to do this. We love to point the finger. Oh, it's this guy and it's this guy and this fellow over here. And the reality is, it's we and I. If Christians did what they were supposed to be doing, we wouldn't have this problem. I will tell you right now, when you look at the subjectivism in our world of calling good evil and evil good, where did all this radical political liberalism come from? Political liberalism, social liberalism, is the child of religious liberalism. Religious liberalism came first. Where did, liberal, where did religious liberalism come from? Well, that's those who, who deny that the Bible is the Word of God. 
They deny the virgin birth, the blood atonement, the bodily resurrection, the second coming of our Lord. And yet will shake their hand and say, well, brother, I'm so glad you're a Christian. Come and fill my pulpit and preach and teach to my people. That's where it came from. It corrupted the churches. It filled the churches. The majority of churches in America today are like that. The majority of churches here in Puyallup deny. If you were to pin them down and ask them specific questions, they deny the inspiration and authority of the Scripture, the virgin birth, the blood atonement, the bodily resurrection, and the second coming of our Lord. And yet they, they want to wear the label Christian. And yet if these are the defining things of Christianity then they're not. And yet, why do we have that? Because the people who do believe those things tolerated those who didn't in their midst. And if religious liberalism is the father of all the other problems that we are dealing with, then really whose fault is it? It's God's children who failed to obey in tolerating the deniers. When we look around, We really need to be thinking about we and I. Because the tolerance of our spiritual ancestors, they are the grandparents of what we see around us. And we are their heirs. Are we really any different? No, we're, we're no different. So as you pray for the nation, as you pray for an awakening, as you confess the sins of our nation, think of we and I. And as you pray for revival, don't say, God, send a revival to Puyallup, send a revival to Washington, send a revival to America. Say, God, send a revival to me. May I be and do what I am supposed to be and do. Nehemiah says, we and I. He says in verse 8, Remember, I beseech thee, the word which thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you among the nations. But if ye return unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them. Though there were of you cast out to the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and bring them into the place that I have chosen to put set my name there. Real quickly, if you're a Schofield dispensationalist, I'm a dispensationalist, but not a hard, fast Schofield guy. Uh, we have the idea of the, the Palestinian covenant. Okay, the promised land. Okay? Title deed to the promised land belongs to Israel. But the Palestinian covenant is the uh, the fine print. Okay? Yes, the promised land belongs to Israel. Can Israel live there? No. Why not? Because they're disobedient. If they're obedient, they get to live there. If they're disobedient, they don't get to live there. That's the Palestinian covenant in a nutshell. And that's what he's talking about here. He's quoting from the passage of Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you would turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'll give you about, about three or four seconds to find Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, 30, beginning at verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are, uh, have come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice, according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity... And have compassion upon thee, and will gather, return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be driven out unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it. 
and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. So God gives them a proposal, a choice. If you obey, then you'll be restored. If you choose to disobey, then you'll remain scattered. Or if you're in the land at the time of disobedience, you will be expelled and scattered. There's the recognition, he says there in verse 8, that they deserved their present dilemma. The captivity was something that Israel deserved, and Nehemiah recognizes that. He acknowledged the sin. He recognizes God's just actions. By the way, this is true for salvation as well. That those who do not recognize and acknowledge our need will not be helped. Those who make excuses will not be forgiven. God doesn't cut deals. I need to recognize the fact that I am in rebellion against God, that I am a sinner, that I have done things that are contrary to God's word. I don't do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm, not, and I'm doing things I'm not supposed to do. I have rebelled against God. I have sinned against Him. That's what sin is, 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 is disobedience to God in essence. And then I need forgiveness. I need to be reconciled to God. And salvation is not by being good and trying to fix the problems. Salvation is not being baptized. Salvation is not joining the church. Salvation is putting my faith and trust in what Christ did on Calvary's cross that we've talked about in the last several weeks. Christ died on the cross to bear my sins, to, to, to bear the penalty of my sin. And that I can receive forgiveness, and that's what I need. I don't need to turn over a new leaf, because the other side is just as bad. I need forgiveness. I need to be reconciled to God. And God made provision for that. In Jesus Christ. How is it put to my account? We talked about this in the Sunday school hour. It isn't put to my account by confirmation or baptism or church membership or anything else. What Christ did is put to my account simply by believing, by putting my trust in that, by faith in Him. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a simple thing. And it isn't Grace Baptist Church that dispenses this. It's God Himself. So the proposal, obey, and you'll be restored. Verse 9, but if he turn unto me and keep my commandments, again, he's still quoting from Deuteronomy, and do them, though there were cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and bring them unto this place which I have chosen to put my name. Now, these Israel, the people over there, the people that are still here, these are thy servants. And thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. You delivered us, you redeemed us out of Egypt, and you have now redeemed us from the Babylonians, and you have allowed the people, at least in part, to go back to the land. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine hand, or thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants, others who probably are praying for the same thing, who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, Thy servant, he's talking about himself, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And here's the key thing. For I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. Now, Persian kings lived as semi-recluses for their own safety. About half of them died by assassination. They were absolute monarchs. If he made a decree, stamped it, it was law. Only a handful of people had regular access to the king. Nehemiah is one of those guys. He's the guy, he's the king's personal butler. He's his wine taster to make sure that it isn't poisoned. 
He is the keeper of the official signet that stamps all the official documents. He is the, the guy who uh, keeps, the, uh, keeps the books. He's the, he's the doorkeeper. He's the guy who filters people who can come and go and see the king. Nehemiah has access politically to the guy who can do something about the Jerusalem problem. I can't do anything about it. I'll pray for you. I dare say that in the four months that Nehemiah was praying, and I think it was probably closer to the beginning than the end, that little, that little bubble above his head had a light bulb in it. I'm praying for something that even though I'm hundreds and hundreds of miles away, I'm praying for something that I can do something about. I'm praying for something that I am in a position to do something about. Over 250 years ago, a man named William Carey, who was a a shoemaker in England, had a world map up above his cobbler's bench. And he prayed, this before foreign missionaries, and he used to pray for the other parts of the world where the gospel had not been preached. A shoemaker. And pretty soon he would tell other people about it. People would come into his business, he'd, they'd see the map, and he'd explain to them what he was doing. And pretty soon some other people got the same vision, and then they decided that we're going to put together a, 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 a mission and see if we can get somebody to go. Put some, get some money behind this and maybe actually send somebody to China or India or someplace. But who's going to go? A shoemaker went. And uh, God knew what he, was, what he was doing because this guy had an incredible knack for learning languages. And he learned all sorts of, of these Indian languages. He went to India. And he, uh, he translated the Bible. And he preached. The, and he was the, the start of a great movement that sent thousands of missionaries to Asia. But he started by praying. And I don't think he had any intention of going himself. After all, I'm just a, I'm just a shoemaker. But God sent William Carey. A friend of mine in college had a roommate. She was the only believer in her family. And she used to pray for the salvation of her siblings, her, her parents, grandparents, and so on. And she would say, Lord... Even if it were to cost me my life, may you save my family. That young lady never finished her college degree. She died. And at her funeral, her family came to know Christ as Savior. Nehemiah became intent on being part of the solution. The keeper of the signet, the keeper of the king's account, I have access to the king. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. We do a, a great deal of complaining about the wretched condition of our world and of our country, of Christianity in our country. We do a lot of complaining, but very little doing. May Nehemiah be a challenge to us to pray. And as we pray, perhaps open our eyes to do. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you will do with one person who is serious about praying and serious about personal sacrifice, if need be, to accomplish the task. Father, revival starts in a heart. It can start with one. What we expect of everybody else, Father, may it start with us. May we say, we and I.
as we pray for our nation, as we pray for our church. Father, may we include ourselves, that we might do and be what we should, and that we might do indeed. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuallop.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.